Hit me, baby. All right, we're recording. And I'm also pressing this thing called captions because I want a full transcript when I'm done. Um, Okay, this is the Cosmopolitan Globalist. And I'm Claire Berlinski, the host. And Vladislav Davidson is my dear friend, neighbor as well, who is now Ukrainian. He is married to a Ukrainian woman. He was born in Tashkent, emigrated to the United States at the age of seven. So he is a authentic cosmopolitan globalist, and he has been going back and forth from Paris to Ukraine since the beginning of the major war. We've had many, many podcasts with him, but we have a lot of new subscribers, so I'd like to introduce you a little bit more thoroughly for their benefit. Uh, Perhaps you could say a little bit about who you are, bud. Claire, so lovely to be back on with you. You are a wonderful journalist and a great thinker and a great writer and a very good substacker and i uh, value our friendship and it's always nice when one of your friends is your neighbor so so many of the people that i like are not my neighbors so uh and some of the people that i do not like are my neighbors so it's always good when someone i like and want to spend time with is a neighbor and that is the case with you and me so i am uh glad to be on i think for my fifth or sixth appearance on this august podcast mm-hmm. and i am a writer i'm a journalist i'm a uh, artist I'm, i do many things i wear many hats as they say i uh, cannot sit still and so that is why i do four or five or six or twelve things uh, not always perfectly but i do them often competently and often i think even in an interesting fashion some people think so some people don't interest is subjective I have been writing about Ukraine for a very very long time, more than a decade. Mm -hmm. I'm about to publish my second book on Ukraine. It's called The Birth of a Political Nation, Jews and Ukrainians, 2013 to 2023. It's a decade worth of my pieces on Ukrainians and Jews, which is a perennially fascinating theme and topic. And of course, now very topical because... It is a very important theme to understand if one wants to understand the origins of this war. When's the pub date? What did the what? The Pope do? The pub date. Oh, the pub date. What did the Pope do? The Pope Pope said some very silly things today. That's what the Pope did. The pub date is, uh, the joke about the Pope is that he, he just made some very imperialistic third worldist comments today in the news about Ukraine, uh, and, and, and the Russians being the, inheritors of the patrimony of Catherine the Great and Peter the Great. And of course, Ukrainians don't think Catherine the Great is so great. They call her Catherine the Second because she repressed Ukrainian culture, understandably. The pub date of my book is in about two months. So are we going to have uh, a party? I would love that. Would you would you throw me a party? I would absolutely throw you a party. I would be delighted to throw you a pub pub party. We we need a pub party, one in New York. One in Kiev, one in London, one in Paris, and Is my place maybe. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, we can we can have a little reading. I think you know, thirty of our best people. What do you think? Well, we want everyone who might buy the book to come. Do you think we can fit them all in my apartment? I'm not sure, but you do have a nice uh, courtyard. But that's true. We can do it in the courtyard if the weather's. I mean, if it's pouring, that won't be any fun, but it would be it would be an awfully nice place to do it in the courtyard. 
We but should do it in Burnley. Do it. We'll either do it in my apartment or perhaps I could ask my father if we can borrow his apartment. But before that, mm. before that, um, you should also mention that you are a book about, you've written a book about Odessa, a collection of essays about Odessa, which is both beautiful and absolutely heartbreaking because we now know, because this was all written before the war. And of course, um, every word is now pregnant with, with horror and irony, because of course the life, the city that you're describing is being bombed. Uh, I have a big piece in tablet, four thousand words, uh, which I think is uh, long form now, on uh, on the future of Odessa. Came out on Independence Day, August twenty fourth, which is already about four days ago. It is a very long piece. If one wants to understand what is happening to Odessa before, oh, of course, buying my book, it's it's I'm on so tablet sorry. magazine. I didn't see it and I didn't know about it, even though I, of course, follow you on Twitter and I ascribe this to the complete mess Elon Musk has made of Twitter. I would have very much liked to have read that before speaking to you. I'm really indignant that I didn't. Um, well, it's all right. There's a lot. There, I haven't been to Odessa in a month, so <laughs> I, I just came back from Kiev and Chernowitz. And so I have more to say uh, generally about the, the counteroffensive, of the political situation in Kiev the uh, the thinking uh, of elites and normal people in Kiev than I have about Odessa, which I haven't seen in, in, in about a month, and I which I won't be able to get to for another two weeks. So uh, in two weeks, we can talk about Odessa if you want. I want to talk about everything you just mentioned. They're all on my list of things that I wanted to ask you about, as well as about the thinking of elites in Washington. So let's sure. one by one. Um, tell me what you've seen. Tell me what you what you've seen and the impression you have and what you think it means. So I spent just now 10 days in Ukraine. I go in and out and I, uh, I'm based in Paris. And when I have big pieces uh, to write, I go into Ukraine and uh, I am often in Poland. I'm often in other places. I'm often traveling. I popped into Kiev for a week, not having been there for a month and a half to see what the political situation is. Mm-hmm. Kiev is continuously evolving uh, and the political situation is in flux, except also very stoic and stable in many ways. It's very interesting. A lot is changing and a lot's happening, but also not a lot. Things are very much the same as they were six months ago. In some ways, in other ways, not at all. Ukraine is culturally changing very quickly. And in, in many ways, it's hard to predict where a lot of those cultural changes will will take us. In and anyone who um regional identities uh like the the internal debates between ukrainians about various things various issues what people think uh, the outcome of regional identity issues will be um the uh, ukrainization is taking place quicker in some places than others uh you know I feel like this is a bit euphemistic. Can you explain in really simple terms what this means? What what Ukrainization taking place in different terms? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so basically, oh, my my beloved Odessa was very ambivalent about the war because they were deeply embedded in like Russophone culture and they didn't like the 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 center, mm-hmm. and so they didn't particularly try very hard to uh ukrainianize in either the linguistic or the cultural sense but once the russians started hitting the center of town with sure. rockets everyone has a, a plan until you get punched in the face correct 
and so I, I have I have a line which I think is kind of amusing in, in my piece where which where I say that um, there were many people who were ambivalent and remained ambivalent uh, about Ukrainization or the, or their fidelity to the centralized Ukrainian state, even if they did not particularly agree with the Kremlin's view that their apartments should be destroyed with cruise missiles. Right. So the debate in Kiev about the pace of Ukrainianization, Ukrainianization, you say that it's changed quickly. It's not, in, it's not in Kiev. It's it's been the case that 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 there have been no innovations in that debate in about a year. Mm-hmm. There are innovations in the way people are living in Kiev, which is very interesting. They have uh, two American Patriot systems with anti missile defense over the city. And so unlike the rest of the country, missile uh, defense is more or less not a problem in, in Kiev. They, because obviously it's the capital and, and where all the ministries and everything is, they have almost total control of the airways there. Unlike the rest of, of, of the uh, the country, where you can get killed any time, yeah. in Kiev people have more or less internalized the fact that the, that the Russians can't hit the city with anything except Kinjal rockets. And even those can, uh, can be sort of shut down two-thirds of the time now so they party like it's tel aviv you know it's right. very much the part of the israelization or israelification whatever you want to call it of of ukraine is that the people in the capital have internalized the fact that they can go to discos and restaurants the restaurants are full you know it's really interesting yeah, I've I've heard that from other people too. Have been surprised by it, but of course, anyone who's been to Israel isn't surprised by it because that's the classic dynamic that people want, with a special vigor, to be part of life when death is so close by. Oh, absolutely. There's a really vital element, but it's really vital. I mean, there's a kind of there's a there's a stoicism and a and a hedonism and a camaraderie, but it, it, it and it's below the surface that they know about it. In any moment, this can be frustrated or ruptured by a rocket from the sky and so it's very interesting and 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 it's not in any case a form of evasion or um anything of that sort they know what's going on they just and it's not like they're ignoring the obvious but it, it, it's very much like it's, okay, it's we're going completely to be expected, and of course, there's these idiotic propaganda memes on the internet to the effect of "Look what they're doing with our money; they're going to discos." It's obviously anyone who has ever been anywhere near a conflict zone understands perfectly well the psychological dynamic at work, um, and sure. the, the propaganda machine people is have to, overdrive. People have to drink to deal with it. People, people are like, there's so much post-traumatic stress. I just three examples. I walked past uh, a guy with a big dog and the dog was just all over the place. And it was a big fat dog. And the dog, I, I was trying to walk around the dog and I just, I, I, I kind of skipped and danced around the dog, but the dog was so either silly or stupid or fat that it just walked into me. And the guy just almost yelled at me, Hey, watch my dog. Like, okay. And then the next day I see just a girl walking around poor thing. Uh, walking and just and, and just talking to herself and just her hands are trembling and she's obviously mentally unstable and my wife says to me there will be a lot more people like that who are mentally fragile who've been pushed over the edge of course. this is just a girl in the middle of kiev you know of course 
of course. So there's a lot I'm more mentally it. fragile it. people. It's so goddamn unfair. People just yes. live their lives and this catastrophe visits them. This catastrophe. This They didn't start. They didn't want. They did nothing to deserve it. And these vulnerable people are attacked by this monster. And it's so goddamn unfair. Yeah, yeah, it's right. Um, I mean, I mean, they're, they're and they're just so strong and so resilient, and, and so like they, and it, it's so noble and they're so amazing. I, I, I got there on the first night, and and then I was supposed to see my my uh, my friend uh, Rebecca Harms, uh, uh, former German MP in the European Parliament, and uh, we we uh, we made plans to have breakfast. I ran her in the hotel, and we embraced, and then. Um, at three thirty in the morning, the rocket alarm came, and you know I usually ignore her, but you know it was the first time in uh, back in in Kiev for a long time. So I I went down into the basement of this four star hotel. I saw the photo. There's a photo of me l- lying in a parking lot. And they set up these nice plush beds, really plush. Yeah, know, five star hotel. Very comfortable. <laughs> it was very comfortable, but you're in the middle of a very cold, freezing parking lot with a lot of strangers. <laughs> with a lot of strangers, and they put cookies out and water out, and and it was a very VIP way to live in a um, a bomb shelter. I've been in many worse bomb shelters, much more uncomfortable. But you know, it's still a bomb they, shelter. <laughs> it was still a bomb shelter, and all my key friends are like, "Oh, that's so chic. Maybe I'll go to the Radisson next time." And I was like, "Yeah, you should." Uh, and and uh, people people are writing me. Oh, did they have mints on the pillows? And then my my friend uh, Rebecca Harms, the MP, she she I was thirty minutes late for breakfast because yeah, obviously I slept in the cold. Uh, and she said to me, "I uh, I saw you and I were the last ones who didn't go up after they called off the alarm. I just decided to just roll over and sleep for the rest of the night in the in the parking lot." <laughs> and she said, "I saw you and I were the last ones in the parking lot." Well, I mean, among other things, everyone's been suffering from interrupted sleep for months and months, and that will Correct. do a number on your brain. Uh, that's and that's actually why the Russians shoot the rockets at three in the morning and not three yeah. in the afternoon. I mean, that's no joke. It's it's extremely difficult to retain your emotional stability if you are not getting eight hours of uninterrupted sleep, basically most nights, and. Um, I can only imagine how many people are feeling as if they're just losing it because of that. Well, again, the Russians know that very well, and they're doing that because they're torturing the population into fleeing and surrendering, obviously. It's become impossible to think of the Russians as anything but monsters. I mean, the, the there's just, there's there's this, this viciousness to what they're doing. It's just absolutely brutal and brutalist and it's just really hard to understand for people who are not from the region i i don't vicious... want to dehumanize any people and i do feel that the conscripts who are being plucked up from from the boonies and sent there as punishment or completely unwilling are to be pitied but some of them some of them but um the the people making these decisions and the Russians who are perfectly aware that this is happening and celebrate it, I I can't feel anything for them but utter rage and contempt. Contempt, yeah. Contempt is the only yeah, it's just yeah, contempt is the only correct emotion. And rage. 
rage. Rage. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely and, right. And I don't like feeling this way, but I feel it. I feel it all the time. Um. Well, let's talk about the politics. Okay. First of all, Prigozhin. Oh, Prigozhin. So I left Ukraine, sadly, the day he died. And so I, I, I didn't get to talk to Ukrainian MPs and watch them uh, watch their glee uh, <laughs> on the day he died. I would have preferred to have seen the glee and uh, to have been there for the party when he died. And of course, he died on Ukrainian Independence Day, which well, is that's you know, fun. Yeah, it was great. It's kind of surprising, though, because, you know, Putin really likes anniversaries and you wouldn't think he would choose that one. Well, it was the two month anniversary of, of his putsch and mutiny. It wasn't the two month anniversary of uh, it wasn't the year long anniversary. I mean, usually, though, he likes to give himself an assassination on his birthday or something like that. So to do it on Ukrainian Independence Day is is a little bit atypical. Um, who the hell was stupid enough to get into a, a plane with him? Well, I mean, they the the Wall Street Journal has excellent reporting today on on him returning back to Russia, frantically trying to run around and retain control of the militia as the as the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, was closing in and taking over. I mean, they were they were they, they were competing missions. He had to run around Africa talking to the same. Arab and African uh, warlords and dictators and presidents, uh, assuring them that he was he was still in charge. Just as the um, the deputy ministry minister of defense, Benakanut uh, or whatever his name is, was flying around saying, "From now on, this is a military to military, state to state operation, and you have to stop talking to these people." So he flew in just the day before from Africa, and. He was trying very hard to keep his corporation from being swallowed up by the states. It obviously. sounds as if he sincerely believed the promise that he would be left alone. I mean, he'd have never returned anywhere near if he didn't. He miscalculated. I think he miscalculated. He freaked out and he was given, I think, rock hard assurances. Well, there were he- two meetings in the Kremlin with, 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 with uh, Putin, apparently. And I just think he thought that he was too important to, to Russian Russian needs in Africa, obviously. This isn't going to change anything in Niger, where, where the I'm told by my people it was the Russian intelligence services, uh, the GRU, uh, GRU military intelligence guys who, who fomented that, that coup and took over that country. That's but in, in Mali... That's in itself... Um... I would love to talk to you more about that, but let's let's, yeah, let's put, that let's put that aside. Obviously, there obviously you're in the middle of a world historical pivot in Africa from post European post colonial stewardship. Let's call it that. What the demise um, of of Wagner means for Africa is such an important story and so undercovered. But I want to I want to try to organize this podcast in a logical way. So let's put this sure. to the um I'm, I'll put this toward the end of it because I want to just run through some more obvious things. Um, what does his death mean for the war in Ukraine? The death of a war in Ukraine, in the short term, nothing because the Wagner guys have already been pushed off the front. They're not fighting there anyway mm-hmm. so uh, it, it seems that the the that the ministry of defense in russia has 
made a a, a a choice that the Wagner guys who participated in the coup will not be allowed to take contracts with the with a defense ministry. So like the the two to four thousand who actually marched on the Kremlin will probably not be allowed back into um the Ministry of Defense unless that means that they can only join the newly formed Russian um mercenary units that might that might mean that they could only join mercenary units and not the army proper but is there anyone else who has ever had any success fighting there where in in ukraine yeah yeah well i mean look not all the not all the russian battalions are bad some of them are really bad and some of them are really competent or moderately competent the naval Infantry is good. The Spetsnaz is fine. The you know, like the, I think the seventy sixth is fine. They have very competent units, and they have and then they have very green units full of uh, of mobilized men. They you know the Kadyrovites fight fine, even though they they're they're more interested in taking selfies of themselves than fighting. How many Kadyrovites um, are there now? I mean, there it's it's below twenty thousand, I suppose. I mean, oh, totally. I think there are a couple. There must must be five to seven thousand now in Ukraine, from what I hear. They get taken in and out, and they often get into like screaming matches, fist fights, and shooting matches with Russian with Russian guys. So nobody actually wants to serve with them from the Russian army, uh, and a lot of their job is actually to stand behind uh, uh, mobilized Russian conscripts and shoot them in the back if they run. So like, no one likes them. And in fact, I, I've been told over and over again by by ukrainian officers who that are like you know committed to not shooting their enemies that one of one of their issues is keeping their soldiers from executing uh kadyrovites instead of taking them pow (laughs) so you know it's an understandable problem (laughs) someone behaves very badly um is there any concern among the kadyrovites that leaving home might not be a good idea because there's no one to repress them back home i well i i i don't uh i don't talk to many kadyrovites uh the, the chechens i talk to are typically on the ukrainian side so i, <laughs> I have no special insight into what the kadyrovites are thinking but I mean, it, it's an interesting ex- expansion extension of the of the chechen civil war that you have chechens on both sides and they like killing each other they often yeah, the sure. ukrainian chechens ask to be on the on the on the spots on the other front line where they're killing Russian Chechens. They really like shooting at each other. You know, it, it, it's great pleasure. Well, I so mean, Chechnya che- is being held together by sheer terror. And if these are the best sure. forces, and if they're all out of, out of town, doesn't that present interesting opportunities for people who want to get rid of them? I mean, I, I don't think that there is any kind of possibility at this point. No. Uh, uh, to get rid of him by using force, I don't know if uh, I don't know who internally would 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 be doing that, but uh, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure that that is plausible at this point. But you know, right. my ne- my next question is it's a combination question. Two questions: What is actually going on in the war, and why are we seeing these bizarre leaks from the U.S. Defense Department? To what end are we seeing them, and um, what do they mean? Okay, uh, more great questions. Okay, so obviously the the, the counteroffensive is just not as going as quickly as people wanted to go, and 
the Ukrainians both overhyped it to themselves and to the to the Americans because they needed support, and then the Americans and the media overhyped it, and then the uh, Ukrainians felt pressure because they wanted to, to get gains, and the gains weren't happening quickly enough, and then the Americans started pushing them to get gains quicker, and they said, no, we don't want to... Uh, uh, mince meet our soldiers because exactly. unlike the Russians, we don't have reserves of men. So the there's this really kind of unpleasant cycle of over expectation, bartering for expectation, pushing for more results, resentment followed by bad leaks from the Pentagon, followed by unpleasant resentments you understand you understand i think very yeah, well yeah i i'm wondering though is there any truth to the planted stories that the ukrainians are disregarding specific advice from the us and the uk and from nato um for a decisive a decisive maneuver operation you know sort of a schwerpunkt um initiative in favor of smaller unit actions uh to attrit russian forces is this is this do we know for sure that this was the advice they were given? We, we know they were, sure. This was the this was the advice was given. This is this has been widely reported, and I believe it's probably true. And also from what I've seen and what I've heard, and even from what I heard from American trainers of these guys, volunteers. All obviously, there's no American on the ground troops. Was that the that the Ukrainians was just not good at combined arms maneuver? They just couldn't get that right, and so so it. it it was the case that at a certain point the 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 Ukrainians were like were being given the wrong kinds of strategic advice and actually Especially because we, they're refusing to give them F sixteens and attack them. Yeah, exactly. Like what 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 like what NATO general would expect results with with that kind of Iraq War One or even Iraq War Two I mean, how do you pierce their main defensive lines if you can't hit the hit the logistics and the supply depots? That's right. It's just it's just too hard, and so the Ukrainians are like, let's just go back to what we're good at, which is using long range attacks to attrit armor and to attrit the artillery and destroy logistics, to attrit logistical hubs to make logistics harder to make a Russian repair reconstruction more difficult to get troops to collapse it, you know these are these are very difficult choices that they have to make these are really difficult no choices they have to make. yeah and and you know in some ways they these are roughly roughly equal forces in some ways and one side has morality the other one doesn't one has Western intelligence, everyone doesn't. One has more numbers, which is the Russians. One has uh, the, the capacity to send their men to their certain death without caring about them. One is able to replenish uh, quicker than the other. I mean, obviously, Russia has three and a half times the population. So in some ways, the Ukrainians have the upper hand. They're fighting it on their own territory. In other ways, the Russians have up, upper hand. And so by some criteria the ukrainians should be doing better by other criteria they're fighting but it a really is not fight. as reported a stalemate the ukrainians are making steady but slow progress they are making steady and slow progress and they may very well just break out somewhere in the south and 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 hit the azov sea by by september at which point they'll be able to target crimea with long-range artillery that's right that's possible that 
it is it is plausible i mean it's it's becoming less po- plausible but i think it is possible at this point that they'll still reach the the azov sea by by the end of september it's not not outside of the range of possibility did you have- i hope they we published, we republished a terrific article by one of our writers, Thomas Gregg, um, one of our readers, uh, comparing the situation to the one faced by the German and Allied armies in Normandy after the consolidation of um, the Allied bridgehead. Um, did you read that piece? Because I thought it was super insightful. And No, I did not. Well, tell me what he said in, in a few brief words and I can tell you. I can, I can actually read the key paragraph. D-Day was 6 June 1944. And by early July, that bridgehead extended from the vicinity of Caen in the east to the Atlantic Ocean, Atlantic Ocean south of the Cotentin Peninsula. From that point forward, the Allied objective was to break out of the bridgehead. The German objective was to prevent a breakout or more realistically to delay it as long as possible. The overlord plan had called for the early capture of the city, the city of Caen, and the high ground beyond the city to ensure that the British Second Army sector of the bridgehead was sufficiently deep to accommodate follow-on forces in preparation for a breakout. The Germans, for their part, realized that an Allied breakout in the Caen sector would open the way to Paris and trigger the collapse of their whole line, so they fought hard to prevent that. On D-Day and for weeks afterwards, the defenders managed to repel every British attempt to take the city. Even when Khan itself was finally captured, the Germans still clung to the high ground beyond. And you can see all these parallels here. Now, this was under under Montgomery, who was the primary author of Overlord. And the failure to take Khan compelled him to modify his plans. So in his view, from then on, the British would continue to act offensively on the Allied left flank, threatening a breakout and attracting German reserves to that sector in order to facilitate a breakout by the U.S. First Army on the opposite flank. And the attack, the American attack was codenamed Cobra. It would go south then east, and it would unhinge the German left flank. And if all went well, it would encircle and destroy the German defenders of Normandy, the 7th Army facing the Americans, and the 5th Panzer Army facing the British. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's great. That's absolutely great, because it, it gives you a flavor of just the kinds of strategic choices that the, that the Ukrainians have to make. Like, do you put half your army at Zaporizhia in order to keep the Russians from pushing into Zaporizhia while not putting enough troops on the south? Do you put all of your troops into one combined push and then uh, and then you put them into a Russian kill zone? Or do you uh, put more troops than you need to in Bakhmut in order to keep the Russians exactly. there? And then and and then keep, it's a uh, really keep... good analogy. It's one that hadn't occurred to me and I thought it was extremely, extremely shrewd of him to point it out. Uh, And he also points out at the time that Montgomery was taking incessant criticism. He was infuriating the Americans because he was saying everything's going to plan. And the Americans who saw that the original scheme had failed were were beside themselves. And Churchill was just as irritated. Um, He wanted him to see him sacked. But behind the scenes, as Greg points out, the military situation was developing as Montgomery intended. And the threat in Khan forced the Germans to commit most of their panzer divisions there. And the German strength against the Americans gradually dwindled away. Now, here's the point of difference. The Allied right. air superiority was effective in isolating the battlefield by interdicting the movement of German reinforcements and supplies. So when Cobra was launched on the, July 25th, the Americans soon scored a deep breakthrough, leading to the collapse of the German line. So the encirclement of the defending forces didn't come off, but the German army in northern France was shattered, and the retreat of its remnants only came to a halt on the western border of the Reich. 
can this be done without the kind of air power brought to bear in th- in in that situation? I mean, whoops! So my computer fell on the ground. That's okay. That happens. See, this is this is what happens. I didn't even but, hear it. Uh, that's good. My well, that's good. Um, obviously, it, it's a very similar situation in that you have to make very, very, very complex judgments. And then also you have to lie to your allies as well as to your enemies. And the Americans and the British are micromanaging the war in a kind of uncomfortable way, but they are giving the rockets and the, the intelligence coordinates. So in a sense, they do get a, they get a veto on where the shooting takes place. Yeah. I wish, I wish they would just be more patient. I wish there'd be less of these articles continuously attacking the, right, the yeah. Ukraine. What the hell is that all about? That is the last thing the world. Yeah, it's it's so bad, but but also the 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 the, the casualties are so stunningly bad and so crippling to the Ukrainians that the morale in Kiev is kind of a sense of understanding that every week the, the Ukrainian army is losing. A thousand to thousand five hundred KIA, and they can't take those kinds of casualties for very long. So, the you know you you don't get to do this again. The the Ukrainians do not have the manpower, and the West does not have the the tech, the 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 guns, the ammunition, the planes. Well, I mean, we do have the planes and the tanks, but we just don't have the capacity to give them another shot at it. I they, mean, these, uh, these leaks themselves are a disaster. They're a disastrous example of the administration's, well, I mean, there was an article about this in, I think it was The Bulwark, it was written by Eric Edelman, and I can't remember who his yes. co-author was. Did you see it? Um, he said- just, No, I didn't. I wrote about, I wrote for them uh, at the start of the war. I haven't seen what they've been covering. He, he just published it, and it's excellent, and, he's, and, and they write, it's a disastrous example of the administration, the Biden administration's seeming inability to understand the information environment in which the war is taking place and the requirements for sustaining public support for U.S. engagement commitment over the long haul. And they're absolutely right. They're just handing ammunition to, to detractors in Congress for- allocating supplemental funding. And uh, it's an already parlous legislative environment, as they point out. Members from both parties are balking at approving additional support. And now they're giving their opponents their talking points. Right? I mean, they're saying, why throw good money after bad? The counteroffensive is failing. And and this is going to be endlessly repeated on Tucker Carlson and 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 uh, by Vivek Ramaswamy. And, and why are they allowing this to happen? Because they, they're allowing this to happen because they want this to go away before the election. They're allowing this to happen because they really like the Ukrainians either to win uh, something big and and, and, and the, the Russians to sue for uh, an armistice so that this goes away before the election. Well, or if you want them to win, give them the fucking... I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, if you want them to win, give them the weapons they need. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Claire, but I'm I'm explaining how they think. I'm not, I don't work for the administration, thankfully. I mean, they 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 don't want the Ukrainians to lose, but neither do they particularly want them to win. I, you know? I understand this. I mean, winning would be great for the election. I I don't think they I don't think that in their hearts of hearts they do think that the that the Ukrainians are capable of winning before the election. I just don't think that. Um, you know, there's a there's a great there's a great comment from the professor Phillips O'Brien. He's a yeah, professor. I admire him very studies. much. He's good, yeah. He writes, after the last two weeks, I think Pentagon anonymous sources need a proper holiday. Not just a long weekend, but two weeks at the beach. No phone would be better for everybody. 
I mean, I, the, the, these anonymous sources are causing real damage to American national security. Can't they control them? Because what I think they saying- are control. I think I think they are controlling. I think they're doing. I think they're doing it to shape operational but and strategic. Why? why are they acting against American interests? I I just I think that their interest is to get reelected. I don't think that they think that the Ukrainians can win this. How does this get them reelected? I mean, how does making it sound as if this is just another Afghanistan get them reelected? It it shouldn't, but it doesn't look great. Honestly, it doesn't. And what it do you think is the narrative they're trying to create? I think that they want uh, to to allow the the public to think that they that they did this very well, and then just ha- have a kind of armistice somewhere around spring of twenty twenty four before the elections really get going so you could say look we've brought an honorable piece to this they can't allow this to go on and on and they know that that at a certain point the republicans will will run with this and that the the public will get tired and, so an armistice you, an armistice you think they really just want an armistice that allows russia to rearm and then take this up again as soon as they're rested and ready i think at a certain point if you're someone like Mr. Jake Sullivan or his people, you start to think, well, even if that is the case, we've destroyed 50% of Russian military capacity. And even if they take three, four years to rearm, by the time we're back in office in 25, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to deal with better. I think in their heart of hearts, they think like that. I, I cannot imagine thinking like that. I can't imagine being so unpatriotic that you would think that this is going to be something that Americans will be in a position to face better then than they are now. Well, this is, for, them, this, for them, this is a, a distraction from what they really want to focus on is China and uh, and going back to the JCPOA, the the deal with the Iranians. Well, I mean, they, as for the latter, I have I have a lot to say about that. But if this is supposed to be a distraction from China, anyone with a brain can see that China is watching this. And if we fail yeah, to support an ally who is an actual country, a UN member, appropriately, with whom we signed the Budapest Memorandum, do they? Are the Chinese are really going to believe that we're going to sacrifice American blood for Taiwan? Come on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's I can't imagine that people who have been around as long as they have and who have as much experience as they have and have seen as much of the world as they have and who have, in Sullivan's case, you know, a background in national security, who've read con- quite deeply in the field and are being advised by some pretty smart people, I suppose, um, right. could really think this. It's it's inconceivable. Yeah, it's inconceivable. My my uh, my sense of talking to to people in Kiev at the at the MP level and uh, elite bureaucrats and, and strategic uh, people is that they they don't want to look ungrateful and they th- th- they're still thinking that things could be okay and that they got enough. But they really 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 want those F sixteens. And if if this goes badly. The population isn't going to turn on the army. I asked a couple of MPs if this goes badly, will the population turn on the army? And they they said no, but they 
could become very, very, very aggrieved in ways that would not be great for Americans standing in the world. Can you yeah. imagine? Can you imagine what the commentary in the international media would make Ukrainian uh, Americans look like if Ukrainians were saying, "Well, look, you, we got screwed over. We got stabbed in the back. You didn't give us what we needed to win. Now we've had to make this armistice with the Russians." They don't even need to say it. It's just obvious. They wouldn't even need to say it. But I mean, do you think that Ukrainians, if I, I don't know whether anyone would talk about this openly, but of course my first thought is if I'm Ukrainian, I want the bomb. Yeah, there was there was a lot of talk about restarting the Ukrainian nuclear missile program after they didn't get what they wanted at the at the Vilnius NATO conference, which was some sort of rhetorical elucidation of a lot of talk among whom? Ukrainian Twitter sphere, Ukrainian yeah. elites uh, mouthing off on Facebook for about 48 hours. There was a lot of talk about we need our own nuclear arms, blah, blah, blah. But it, it was it was obviously serious and that these are elite people. These are people in the ministries. These are high level civil society people. These are MPs uh, in certain cases. These are opposition people thinking otherwise. And this is another thing where I just don't understand what the U.S. security establishment is thinking, because it's so obvious that. This is what's going to happen if we don't get our fingers out of our asses. And that is it for the NPT. Poland would be next, obviously. Sure, sure. And we have I an arms race. I just came back from Poland. I have to tell you, uh, this example, uh, there will never be another country ever again that willfully gives up its nuclear weapons. This never. Is, never. Never. Uh, this, this, we now have Libya and Ukraine as the examples of what happens if you do. And to some extent, South Africa. Uh, South, South Africa. Africa. South Africa actually didn't was is the counter example. I would say, Why? but South Africa wasn't facing the same security environment. Yeah, not at all. Um, but, but there have been, I, which is to say, there are there are three or four examples of countries who had the technical capacity to break through, but did not go all the way with their nuclear program. And, over, and the idea or, that under these circumstances, we're trying to negotiate with Iran. Right. It's it's laughable. I spent a lot of time just uh, explaining to to Ukrainian MPs and former MPs over the last week and a half that what the effect of the Obama JCPOA was on on uh, uh, on Iran and on Israel. And they nodded gravely. And I had to explain to them, uh, even the very smart ones who just didn't understand how the dots ink together, that the Syrians and the Ukrainians were collateral damage to the JCPOA. Exactly, and 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 but no. Once I once I explained it to them, no one argued against me. They're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. You know, I had that conversation with with one former and two or three current MPs over the last week and a half, and it was interesting because they're like, oh, okay, that that sounds right. Oh, fuck, sorry, you know, oh, fuck, you know. The problem. I, I just don't see how the United States is capable in its current condition of pursuing an intelligible foreign policy that's in the American and global interests from administration to administration, given its level of not only total dysfunction and, and polarization, but the level of complete ignorance of the rest of the world. I mean, the rise of Vivek Ramaswamy is 
the most depressing thing I've seen since the rise of Donald Trump. Well, yeah, and he, in some ways, he makes Donald Trump almost look noble. It's, it's insane. Well, at least Donald Trump is stupid enough that you can't blame him for being stupid. He isn't capable of understanding anything more sophisticated than what he says. And but, Donald Trump also has some like old man set of his way policies that he first stumbled his way in in the eighties. Like you can almost you can almost kind of understand with his vivid guy. It's like what the hell, you know. I, I'm not going to defend Donald Trump, but Vivek Ramaswamy is someone who is pure fraud. I mean, you whatever we may say about Harvard, you don't get to graduate cum laude from Harvard and be an idiot. And he also graduated from Yale. Um, so you think he's not an idiot? He's not an idiot at all. He's highly intelligent, and he is a complete charlatan who has seen what Trump was capable of achieving and decided he wants to do the same, and he will say whatever it takes. Well, I'm sorry that the Republican Party is in that space. Um, but, but let's talk more about let's let's talk more about Ukraine. I also just went to the Chernowitz, uh, uh, the Odessa Film Festival in exile in Chernowitz. I spent mm-hmm. three days watching contemporary Ukrainian film and writing about it. I'm, I'm putting out a piece on the the. the, the set of the state of ukrainian film in the world now so that was interesting what did you see i saw like uh six documentaries i saw three fiction films and a couple of three or four fiction films the ukrainians are are now screening the last of the major doc uh, major fiction films and non-fiction films which were made right before the war started so in mm-hmm. fact, I'm actually in two of them as a as a minor bit player. My my friend has a film called "Do You Love Me," Tonya Nebrova, a Kiev-based Ukrainian filmmaker, nice Jewish girl, by the way. I'm in the film playing myself as drunken intellectual number two. Yeah, are, are you mentioned that in the last one? Um, are any of these films good? Yes, of, of the kind that could be shown in Europe and the United States and make it clear what the situation is. Well, so so here's the thing: the the Ukrainians are stopping to make, uh, if I can use that phraseology, are are ceasing to make yeah. fiction. They but they're making tons of documentaries. All of them noble. All of them well intentioned. Some of them good. Some of them well made. Some of them not as great. Some of them utterly brilliant. Some all of them all of them very noble and and well intentioned. Uh, one of them, one that I saw was particularly melodramatic and, and manipulative actually in the q a some people accused of being manipulative rightly so that there there, there are the reenactment melodrama versions of of the war which are are, are are you know very cheap documentaries but there are a lot of remarkable documentaries coming out of ukraine there will be all over uh the the, the film festivals and there'll just be many 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 more of them before this is are done. they going probably... to be widely screened in the u.s I don't know. It's it's interesting. I'm going to write about them in ta- in tablet in my column, but I just saw are a lot of very Netflix, for example. Uh, what, some of them are like made for TV Ukrainian TV quality. Mm-hmm. Like one was 42 minutes long. And it, it was it was shown on evening Ukrainian television. Uh, all all of Ukraine watches the same television because the the six major TV stations joined forces for one marathon, and every Ukrainian watches the same news. Which is good for, uh, for you know, for stitching the population together. 
It's it's and actually it's really important because I was yeah. thinking about this. I was thinking Americans learned about the Second World War, those who didn't fight it, from the movies. That's and right. that's why Americans knew, have always known that Hitler was the bad guy. And they've always understood the general contours of the conflict, what happened. And and one of the reasons, and it was because Jews did control Hollywood. And, and, and we did Where we're not gonna be talking about the Jews controlling Hollywood. No, it's just it's just a fact. They were severely severely you no, know, they were they were wildly overrepresented in Hollywood, and this ensured that a reasonably accurate portrayal of the Second World War was common to the average American. Now, of course, you don't get all Americans sitting in front of the same film anymore. It's it's completely it's it's the the film environment is completely um how would you describe it? It's it's you know, it used to be that once upon a time everyone went to see the same movie. Well, I guess they sort of did just now with Oppenheimer and Barbie, but it used to be for all movies there was this kind of simultaneous release and then everyone was talking about the same movie and so you yeah, there was a coherent like, culture there was one culture as opposed to many or see, yeah exactly so you'd see everyone would see the bridge over the river Kwai at the same time and everyone would see everyone saw um what was spielberg you know schindler's list at the same time but and this is the way to communicate with americans in a way that they they might understand the stakes a lot better than some everybody foreign policy again some of these documentaries are like not bad Ukrainian evening news quality. And some yeah. of these are Oscar level, uh, you know, works of art. They're really interesting. And there will be a lot more of them. Are they, the, would they be accessible to Americans? I think some of them will be forgotten by time and some of them will get lucky and will get good distribution deals. And I hope uh, maybe my article will help with that a little bit. We'll see. I I feel such a sense of um, desperation at trying to counter this the onslaught of Russian and fellow traveler propaganda in the United States, which is so powerful. And and you know I don't think Americans are bad people. I really don't think these people in the heartland who have come to believe that Ukraine is a Nazi country that's totally corrupt and the Russians are the good guys. I don't think they believe this because they're evil people. I think they've just been uh, systematically misled. Well, I mean, look, there, there, are, there, there are a lot of issues with the fact that, uh, like, Ukraine, Ukraine was just in all sorts of bad ways on the wrong side of the Trump political thing in, in the last three years. There were... The, some Ukrainians behaved badly during the 2016 elections. Some Ukrainians tried to intervene on behalf of. Uh, yeah, that does, it, it, it's also it's also a massive information operation onslaught. Just sure. massive. Correct. But also like the, the not not to defend them, but I understand the national conservatives are thinking, well, what's in it for me? No one's taking care of me. Why are we taking care of these Ukrainians far away? I could sit down with any one of those national conservatives and explain what's it in, what's in it for them. And if they were badly, I don't have fifty thousand Claire Berlinskis to send to every town in America. That's and the if problem. I did, if if I did, the world would be a better place. But I don't. This is what I'm preoccupied by. How can this case, especially because, for. God knows why, but not one of our politicians is capable of explaining it. 
And I have no idea why it is that our politicians are incapable of sitting down with the American people. I mean, Biden hasn't given one single damn speech. Um, incapable of sitting down and explaining, look, here's how the world works. Here's what happened in the wake of the Second World War. And this is why we are prosperous and we are powerful. And it comes with certain responsibilities and obligations. And it is very much in our interest to keep up our side of the bargain, because if not, we're going to be like any other American country, which is to say like Mexico or like like Brazil or like Peru will be that irrelevant and that poor. Um, you know, this is yeah, the world that we made and we benefited from. And not only did we make it and benefit from it, so did everyone else. Because, you know, otherwise uh, the code pink narrative has completely infected the national conservative side. Where, where they're completely willing to believe that all of that to the extent this is true, it's because we've created a system of imperialism that benefits only us. And um, when you consider the amount of wealth and peace that have has been the world has been blessed with since the Pax Americana, and consider going back to the world before that, it is so horrifying. It's so horrifying. It makes me utterly sick. To think that so many Americans do not understand this, and I don't know how to get it across to them. Yeah, I don't either. I really don't either. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that this film that I worked on, that Sean Penn made about Zelensky, which will be out on September 18th, will do In something about that. On September 18th, uh, the 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 superpower film. The Sean Penn documentary about Zelensky, on which I was a producer, that right. is out in two weeks. And in I'm America. hoping that in, yes, in America, it's been bought by Universal. It is going to be out on Universal Plus or whatever they want, whatever it's called. I forget the name of the, um, of the, uh, of the uh, streaming that uh, Universal owns. I believe it is called, it's called, it's called Paramount Plus. So it'll yeah. be streamed on, on September 18th. The film is done. It's going to be great. We premiered it in Berlin. I'm in the film hanging out with Zelensky the night before uh, with, with Sean Penn, right as he goes to see Zelensky. I'm with Sean Penn the night before the war, having dinner with some journalists and some writers, and we're How arguing. How did the audience about react to it? I think, the, I think the audience really enjoyed it because it's a really powerful film. Yeah, I was at the premiere at the Berlin Film Festival, there are a couple of scenes uh, where people laugh. He really got a great sense of civil society. He got really good people into the film. And it was very compelling, this film. And I think people will think the same. Chris Christie has been doing a good job. I mean, he has a great debate, but he has been doing a good job of going to... Fine. Yeah, I'd vote for him. I'd vote for him. He's been going doing a good job. Well, I can't really forgive him for his four years of kissing Trump's ass, but no, but a lot of other people did also. It doesn't make it right, but he is he would certainly be a more powerful spokesman for the global order that Americans created than Biden seems to be capable of being. And yeah. Uh, uh, Haley, Haley, and and Chris Christie are the reasonable, sane, competent foreign policy wing of the of the of the Republican Party. Yeah, and Pence, but but you know they hate them. 
Well, what can you do? I mean, the the uh, the, the party will write itself. This is a thermidorian reaction to to the neoconservative takeover of the Republican Party. This is a, a backlash. They're trying something else. The Republican Party. To Ukraine. Hmm? What are people in Ukraine saying about what happens if Trump is reelected? Uh, I've got to put this in my piece. I, I, I went to see a bunch of MPs and I talked to a lot of mm-hmm. them. And I went to see one of Poroshenko's top guys. Mm-hmm. Poroshenko only has 27 MPs in parliament now. He, his fraction is not huge, but still influential. He's mm-hmm. in the opposition and... and uh, the fact that he was winnowed down from 125 MPs to 27, he kept his best top 20% of his party in, in the in the in the MP in the slots that he got. So but he's behaved well. He's behaved honorably. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah, he's done very well. And I think he would have done just as well as Zelensky, although probably he wouldn't have been as successful as, as channeling the, the the country and and the world into Zelensky helping. He has a world historical talent for for. It's- Come of, come of the hour, come of the man. In some places, yeah. And Poroshenko has only has only kept twenty percent of his MPs, so he kept the best top twenty-seven. Mm-hmm. So his twenty-seven MPs are, you know, they're talented people, right? The 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 less talented, the less intelligent, the less powerful uh, thinkers and orators, they were not given party seats on the list because obviously he got wiped out in two thousand nineteen. But I I. I talked to a bunch of his MPs and I went to see one of his top guys who's very bright and I've had a relationship for many years. And I said, are you concerned about Trump? Is everyone concerned? And he said to me, everybody, everybody, everybody. And then emphatically one last time, the fourth time he said, everybody is concerned about Trump. He said it four times. Well, rightly so. Rightly so. Everybody, he said it. Everybody four times, like he was crossing himself, you know. <laughs> and and if that's true throughout Europe, it's true throughout Europe. I mean, do you think that if the U.S. basically drops off the map, that there's any possibility of Europe being able to unite itself, get itself together, and continue to provide Ukraine with what it needs? Europe, Europe simply does not have what is necessary in terms of arms production. We're not. We're, we've we, we've by we i mean the americans kept the europeans from having enough arms production uh, and uh, military industrial plant but in order there to is no plan in europe to begin producing that's what appalls me right yeah but there's no plant even if they were going to do it it's not possible with the with the exception of the brits and the french the brits have the capacity and they're doing stuff and they're they're doing a lot of stuff secretly and they're they're recalibrating their factories to make uh, uh, to make the kinds of things that the that the Ukrainians need but it's again it's it's just not enough it's you can't enough. tell me that an advanced technological society like Europe is incapable if it is if, if the will were there of embarking upon a massive arm rearmament program yeah but it's not going to be it's not going to be soon enough for the Ukrainians to win the war that'll take 22 years or three years minimum they're buying up what they need from the South Koreans because the South Koreans make a lot, a lot of lot of, um, of uh, shells. And the South but Koreans, they understand what's at stake. The South Koreans are being very helpful, but again, it's it, it's not enough. The amount of shells that the Ukrainians need is just gargantuan, and if the Americans fall off, it's not apparent that the uh, Estonians, who are you know the Latvians, are giving like two percent of their GDP to the the Ukrainian army. Even if you get fifty percent of a Latvian GDP, 
compete to the Ukrainian army, then then what? Still, you know, it's still not it, enough. You know? It's capable of coming together for the COVID fund, and capable of coming together, in, you know, not not particularly well, but capable of coming together to deal with the with the refugee crisis and the and the financial crisis. Surely, right. it should be capable of coming together for something that's about a hundred times more important. You'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd think so. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't understand why they aren't. Well, they've they've done they've done about as well as could be expected. Some countries are worse. The Italians and the, and the well, the Germans are okay now. Uh, the Hungarians are, of course, a problem. Some the farmer no, you were not really okay. Are you looking at the statistics on the AFD? Uh, well, I mean that 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 is that is real. But I mean they've they've started giving a lot of weapons and a lot of support. I mean it's not anywhere where it should be, and it took a year longer than necessary. But you know, again, the closer you are to the Russian border, the more you're willing to give up one or two percent of your GDP to the Ukrainian army. That's obvious. But again, it's, it's about the Americans. Just, just not there. The capacity is not there. It's an Amer- It's an American fight, you know. But I don't understand why. I don't understand why it, there's not absolute panic. Why there's not a realistic understanding that Trump could win. Why they don't see this as a life and death issue, which it is. It is. I, yes. I mean, most people, when someone puts, you know, someone mugs them in a dark alley and puts a knife against their throats have a fight or flight reaction where's the fight or flight reaction where's the adrenaline dump i don't know i don't know i don't know noble claire i just don't know who Um, would know who could explain this to us i mean you really have to go you'd really have to go country by country you have to talk to different europeans um I think that I think a lot of European bureaucracy is starting to understand in a way that they didn't a year ago. Even Macron, really, I think, based on my conversations who talked to him and his people, they really understand that the Russians need to lose now. I think Macron oh, really yeah. changed. Macron, is, Macron has, you know, he has come around with the vigor of a convert. Yeah, but that's that's really interesting. That was not the case three months into the no, war. No, it sure wasn't. It sure wasn't. He has just. He it, it he said a come to Jesus moment. I don't know exactly what triggered it, but he gets it now. He does get it, and I think if you if you'd been maybe, the one, maybe from Africa. Yeah, I mean that, and too little, too late. I mean the 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 French really screwed that up. I mean it's a and it's a really big problem how how for the French especially because this is their backyard and it's their nuclear energy uh, for for the resources that they yeah. need was well, coming. Fantastique. And that's, I mean, that is a stunning loss. It's a stunning loss. And part of it is entirely their fault. But another part well, of it is Russia's fault. Well, I mean, they 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 were told by French intelligence, you should just rush the, you should rush the, um, the gendarme or the special forces to, to surround the palace, you know, and they didn't do it. They, were they, they, I thought the controversy was that they weren't told by the intelligence. There's there's different views on that, but I I think they made the wrong decision at the wrong moment. And they 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 could have they could have uh, stepped in. Oh, you know, I mean, there are American bases there. I mean, the the Americans use use that country to fight terrorism all over the region. I, mean, I know. All, also, very badly, terrorist attacks are up like thirty thousand percent since the American bases opened up. 
Yeah, I mean, causation isn't correlation, but um, certainly whatever the West has been trying is not working. And this is a huge problem. It never, it's never reported anywhere in the U.S. I mean, it's it's ISIS redux all over a, again, a completely innocent population is being is being brutalized. Brutalized isn't even strong enough. It's being massacred. It's being it's it, tortured, and no one cares. No one yep. cares. And now we've lost a very significant military base. And um, I don't think Biden's calling attention to it because, you know, it's not the sort of thing you want to advertise, but it's a foreign policy setback on the order of losing Afghanistan. Yeah, it's it's like the closing of, a thir- of the third American embassy in the course of a year and a half, you know, like uh, Kabul, then, then Kiev, which obviously, thankfully, is working again on a voluntary basis. Nobody's working there who, who doesn't want to be there, and they're working really hard, and they're really, you know, over overpowered what they have to do, but they're they're doing their best. And now they've lost in just a year and a half. What is it? Three American uh, embassies had to be shut down. That's kind of a catastrophe in terms of running foreign policy. It is a catastrophe, and this is the moment with. Wagner's fate up in the air to be trying to recoup those losses. Yeah, I don't. I think it's a bit too late. I think the Russians have made inroads, and also just like the, I think I think the Africans think well. There isn't one one African uh, polity uh, or or group. But well, there is. It's almost like a single African when it comes to France. They just hate France. Yeah, I, I guess that's right. Yeah, you look at you look at Libya, where the Russians are doing very well. You look at Mali, you look at uh, Central African Republic, and you look at Niger. That- the Russians are making inroads everywhere. The the Egyptians are are back on board with the uh, Russians. It's just it's just a catastrophe. We're just losing. It really is like a domino effect. Like you know the yeah. Vietnam era domino effect it's just yeah. all over again in some ways it's like the soviet the soviet union minus communism you know and i just don't think we are fully appreciating the effect of the information operations i mean the 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 french certainly have screwed themselves and also there's you know there's a, the colonial past has an infinite amount of power over people's minds but it doesn't help that macron has been just stupid in the way he's approached them. I mean, the Macron is a particular gift for alienating people and for not understanding the sensitivities of a situation. So, I mean, in part, you can blame the French for their own fate, but the the bulk of Russian information operations is being directed toward Russia, toward Africa, and they work. They work. Yeah, fine, refuse- Pardon, go on, sorry. They're doing fine, yeah. They're doing they're doing very well. I mean, this was this was a coordinated operation. Niger, I'm told by people who know a lot about it, took six months. What else did you hear? That uh, that the French were caught flat-footed. That the French were being squeezed out. I mean, they got rid of the French ambassador. They got rid of the American ambassador very quickly. Uh, the the African countries around who were willing to send in a force we're told by nigeria to stand down it's just uh i, I know that uh uh the the word shit show was popularized and made a bourgeois by one uh barack hussein obama but let's let's call it a shit show yeah um well i mean the ECOWAS 
intervention idea was lunacy from the beginning, but um, the signs were there beforehand and people weren't paying attention to them. They weren't taking them seriously. And why they weren't taking them seriously after everything that's happened, I do not know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Ukraine, Russia distracted a lot of people. I just don't know. Maybe, maybe we really can't chew. Can't and, walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, maybe we can only look at at one part of the world at but, the same time. I mean, time. we have like different parts of our bureaucracy are dedicated to this. We have Africa desks in the intelligence agencies and the Defense Department and the State Department. We have. Sure, but then you have to get the then you have to get the army and the civilian command to make decisions based on that information. You can have perfect information on the Africa desk, and then and then no one does anything about it because the political elite just doesn't have enough bandwidth to concentrate or isn't smart enough to know that should be doing something. But I mean, we used to be able to do this. You know, Nixon would not have not would not have allowed this to fly under the radar. Totally, and and that's right. I mean. And even in many ways, Reagan wouldn't have. No, and I not think even, at all. I not think even all. Clinton probably wouldn't have uh, dropped the ball on something like this either. Yeah, you know? I don't think he would have. And certainly Bush wouldn't. The first Bush wouldn't have. First, Bu- first Bush was not the kind of man who would not have been able to concentrate on four or five different policy areas at once. Yeah. Um, is there any let's 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 start wrapping up because it's it's okay. getting late here. Anything um, else? Wanna check ask? my list of questions that I, so I haven't forgotten something important. Um, um, I have on my list. Can Ukraine do this without the material they need? Do they have? What, is it theoretically possible for them to push Russia out with what they have? I think it's very difficult. I I think they could push them out of particular areas and make Crimea unlivable and make the Russians in certain instances come to their senses and, and, and make a deal. But obviously they need some sort of pervasive victory. Otherwise the, the Russians don't, are, are just not going to take the lessons that they need to and yeah. de decommunize and de-imperialize or whatever. Uh, mm. The, the using all the DD words, uh, obviously, it will be a black swan event that brings this to an end. That cannot be, cannot be predicted by anybody. I'm sure it's not going to be a coup d'état or a revolt of Russian elites, as Who people did you kept speak hoping. to in Ukraine. Sorry. Who did you speak to in Ukraine? I talked to a lot of people. I talked to, I talked to, uh, I tried to talk to ordinary people also. I, I, uh, uh, I went and I saw some old male friends i hadn't seen in a while just you regular guys who i liked mm-hmm. one of them was telling me that he what what he was doing to avoid conscription i just a nice coffee with a, a an, or, an, or, an ordinary pal i hadn't seen in a couple of years and he, he was just he lost his job in logistics and he had to work uh, uh shucking oysters and and mm-hmm. he he was just telling me that he was just really concerned about conscription he didn't want to go to fight there's a lot of guys like that i talked to intellectuals i talked to a, a well-known philosopher i talked to policy people i talked to uh some diplomats i saw six to eight former and current mps mm-hmm. in a week i saw a former finance minister i saw a former uh minister of foreign affairs i saw 
some government people, think tank people, you know, make the rounds. Among the higher level people, the people who might actually know what's going on and be in charge of making policy. Right. Five adjectives, would you say, describe the way their state of mind? Oh, so it's just a great question. One. Befuddlement. Mm -hmm. Two. Stoicism. Mm -hmm. Three. Resignation. Mm -hmm. Four. Leniency. Mm -hmm. With the with the army and American elites and even with me, the way I'm, I was talking to them. You see, you mean like indulgence? Yeah, just like understanding. Like, okay, you know, I asked I asked a former national security advisor who had also been a finance minister. It's actually entirely obvious to Ukraine hands who this is. I said, I said to him, are you, so are you resentful of Americans? And he had to think for a second. And, and he was like, actually, not really. He said, ultimately, they could be doing more, but you know, they're doing enough and, and we're, we're doing our best. He was actually wearing fatigues. He was in the middle of um, uh, you know, he was he was just, he was actually wearing fatigues and, and uh, fighting and uh, I, I ran into him in my hotel and, and we sat down and we had lunch and whatever. He was taking calls, buying up drones in between talking to me and doing deals for drones. And so he, he had left civilian life and political life in order to go into into um, the army. Uh, among Zelensky's opponents, there's a lot of frustration. Politics is about to start up again. Politics was submerged for a long time and it was taboo. Right. But the taboo on politics is about to come off. How so? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of the beginnings of maneuvering. Mm -hmm. There's been two, three months where Ukrainian internal politics has begun to rekindle. You can't really go out and 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 criticize the president or or, or the the foreign foreign minister or Yermak or any of these people yet. But you can. What, what's the gravamen of the complaint? Well, the Poroshenko people have sort of hysteric complaints about about this being a dictatorship and blah blah blah, and they have a point that you know the the they're not being really consulted with but you do have martial law and Zelensky does have a supermajority in parliament so you don't really need to consult with 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 a opposition that has 27 seats you know uh, or 15 seats in another party and that you know you know there there's a there's an internal and I'm almost I'm almost skeptical about relaying these things because it's a lot of the usual bitching but the, 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 they will have rather overblown and overwrought versions of reasonable complaints. But are they complaining about the way the war has been prosecuted or the way? The no, 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 they're not. No, no, okay. no one is. Right. No one is. No, no one is criticizing the army. No one is criticizing Zelensky's decisions. It's entirely about internal stuff like right. uh, like corruption or I mean, and Zelensky is trying to fight corruption. I mean, he, he is he, coming out swinging against it. Well, I mean, Burns went in there, a CIA guy went in there telling him you have to, you have to go hard against corruption because for a long time, the West was 
looking the other way because we didn't want to delegitimize the Ukrainian state in the middle of a war. It's a really difficult thing. Are you going to criticize the Ukrainians about corruption in the middle of a war? Obviously, Zelensky is not corrupt. And Ukraine being what it is, there is corruption and they're doing what they can. They're trying to make corruption treasonous in the middle of a war. Yeah, I just I just read that this morning. And it, it's very controversial because if you call it treason, that's that's something that goes not to the anti-corruption court, but to the uh, in, uh, to the security services, which are controlled by the executive branch. So that, yeah, that is a checks and balances issue. I mean, obviously, I think corruption is treasonous in the middle of a war. But if you give it to the internal intelligence services to to decide what that means as opposed to be oh, anti-corruption. It's treasonous because it's treasonous inherently because it's detracting from the war effort, but it's also being used as propaganda. Totally. Yeah, totally. It is treasonous. I mean, I, I, I agree. And Zelensky saw that a lot of young men on the front were resentful of other young men who are not on the front paying six thousand dollars to get Imagine out of that. yeah of course of course of course there were like you're 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 fighting and dying and giving up your health in the trenches and some kid from a wealthier family than yours gives up ten thousand dollars to an army recruiter yeah, that's outrageous yeah and there, there's a lot of that and Zelensky fired unilaterally every yeah. head of the, head of the regional recruitment offices yeah I yeah saw yeah, and that was very popular, but that was that was an internal move. That wasn't for external consumption. That was to make people internally understand that they were fighting corruption. It was a good move. It was a good move externally too, though. I don't know. You tell me. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know whether anyone in the U.S. pays the slightest bit of attention to the actual news from Ukraine, or whether they just get it all from you know, gateway pundit. All right, before we wrap up, what would you what are the five things you would like our listeners to understand about the situation that you think they might not know? Five things. Oh, like five more adjectives. Okay. One, the Ukrainians will not blame themselves or blame their troops or their generals for uh things going wrong. Things could still go wrong. The Russians famously do very bad at the beginning of the wars and then they get their stuff together okay. and and then they beat back the French or the Germans. Right. Famous, the Finn, yeah, yeah, exactly. They they they're famously haphazardly organized and really bad at the beginning of a conflict, and then they get it together. Yeah. So we have to just you just have to keep with the Ukrainians for another year and a half. Yeah. To any conversation about ceasefire outside of the Ukrainians' timetable puts lives at risk because it makes the generals have to rush battles when the when the civilian elites tell them, look, you really have to deliver something or else the Americans or Trump or whoever are going to stop delivering weapons. And so, it encourages Putin. Just... Yeah, it encourages Putin. Yeah, so all, all this stuff about ceasefire and pushing pressure on the Ukrainians to negotiate, that is almost... Uh, almost sadistically terrible it's almost horrible yeah. you should yeah. do that yeah. two three the ukrainians are running out of men they're really running out of men who are willing to fight everyone who wanted to go fight is already at the front and many of them are already dead ukraine does not have reserves of manpower it just does not the russians do the russians are capable of full mobilization of of war mobilization of conscription of sending more ethnic minorities to fight 
they are willing to grind this out, the Ukrainians are going to run out of men, out of men and women sooner rather than later. So that's that's where we are. That's number three. Number four, um, you know, this really, well, I, I want to say something cliched about changing world historical order, blah, blah, blah. Let's skip that. No, let's stop. Number, this is a pivot point, and it is. It this is. is the most important story in the world, and the next century at least will be determined by the outcome. And if Americans do the wrong thing, the consequences will be so dark, so unfathomably dark for so many millions of people for so long that um, I mean, I, 61% of the people listening are Americans, according to my stats. And I just sure. want them to understand that this is so much more important than any other issue that's being discussed in the U.S. right now. Yeah, it, it, I, it really, I mean, I, I don't know. I really am a one issue voter at this point. So maybe my perspective, my, maybe my perspective being, you know, I have skin in the game. I have family in the game. I don't, uh, but I feel the same way. I'm glad to hear that. Well, but, I, aren't, aren't I your family, Claire, in a way? Yes, but that doesn't, doesn't mean that you know if 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 you told me that the most important issue in the world right now was was um i don't know um fusion power i would say yeah that's a nice hobby horse and maybe it'll happen but i wouldn't get as ex- and, well fusion power would be a really big deal I'm, I, that's a bad example let's just try bad something else. Bad um, alien invasion Claire's like well, be, the alien no. invasion really puts this Ukrainian Russian thing to a, to us. Okay, to a no, no, no. Uh, these are bad examples. Let's choose a good example. If you told me right. that the most exa- important example, what the most important issue was um, transgender bathrooms. Okay, I mean, I'd say yeah, I'm yeah, with you with the transgender bath- bathrooms, but it just doesn't matter compared to this. Correct, but transgender bathrooms matter somewhat to some people in some places, and. It's, uh, it's we'll get uh, that sorted sooner or later, but the world does not depend on getting it right. right will figure that out in some way, but it's not, it will not determine the course of our civilizational liberty and all that yes. in a way that yes. war. I mean, this really, this war really, it, it's, it really is good against evil. I mean, I, I, I despise when people use that rhetoric, but, it, but this, this is the clearest case of it we've seen since Hitler. Correct. I mean, there in every other conflict, you, everyone has a point. The Russians have no point in this, you know, in this in the situation. I want to I want to caution Americans that anyone who tells them otherwise is never to be listened to or trusted again. Yeah, Mr. Tucker Carlson has a lot to answer for. And Vivek Ramaswamy, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a right line. They're they're opportunists. They're they're grifters and opportunists. Um. Last question. What do you think? Last, last point. Last question. Uh, no, I want to ask. I want your view about what the last point that you don't think they know is. Last point that they don't think they know that I that you don't think they already know. The what the thing you want to communicate that you think they might not know about what's going on. You know the traumatic stress that 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 is on the society i think will spread into europe and i think will demor- demoralize europe 
You mean literally in terms of the refugees or? Yeah, I mean, there are eight, there are like six to eight million Ukrainians in yeah. Yeah. million Europeans or whatever. I mean, that's that's one between one and two percent. That's not nothing. They're no. obviously grouped in some countries, not others. They're obviously in Romania and Poland and Germany. There's a million there's a million Ukrainians in Germany and half of them have been honest to, to pollsters that they're not going back. I mean, these are or do you mean in a larger sense that Europeans, even if they don't consciously admit it to themselves, understand that if Ukraine falls, they're next. Well, I think I think it it could very well in a, in a couple of years if if Ukraine falls, make NATO obsolete, and I mean, the Ukraine the Russians will try some some salami style tactics in Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. but I just think that that kind of trauma with six to eight million people, and if if there if the Ukrainian state falls, there will be obviously millions more refugees into into Europe, I think it will just do something to demoralize the European project. In well, You know that shudder of horror that you always feel when you read First World War p- poetry, when you read... Yes. You know, Dolce et Coronest, Propatio More, those lines, and you think about it, and you think about the trenches, and you think about the gas masks, and how it gives you that shiver, that kind of sense of a hand coming from the grave around your neck that's happening for real right now it's happening for real it's happening to my friends to my family to to everybody that i know and again if if this war is fought successfully from the russian side this is just going to be a crippling add-on effect to like a really bad 10 years for the european union you have 2015 uh syrian refugee crisis then you have uh the Germans and the Greeks, then you have Brexit, then you have, uh, then you, then you have uh, Trump and, and NATO. It's like body blow after body blow after body blow every couple of years, right? And how many of these body blows can a institutional idea, which is based on an optimistic, humane, idealistic view of the future, how many such body blows can it take? I think this will just maybe tip the European project over. And, and, and I want to interject here. There is a large cohort of Americans who will say, well, so what? Why do we care about Europe? We, we pulled their chestnuts out of the fire twice in the last century. It's time for them to go it alone. What is, why is this our business? And I would answer. Why is it our business, Claire? Because it's the West. Because this is us. This because- is us, yeah. Americans are... Americans are descendants of the European project. Americans are this is our our people. I mean, the difference between America and Europe is is it's it's any belief that there's a difference is narcissism of small differences. This is the Western tradition. This is where we come from. This is where what we believe comes from. And late Latin Empire uh, uh, protecting the Greeks because that was their patrimony and their historical exactly and. You know, with our allies, we are mighty. With American allies, we do not need to worry about China and Russia. Together, we're so much more powerful. But if they break us up, they win. And the world belongs to despots, tyrants, tyrants and authoritarians. And the whole thing is ever so much more sinister, as Churchill said, by the lights of perverted science. 
Amen, Claire. Amen. And I think I I cannot possibly say anything more honest or correct or germane or or articulate. So I'm going to say thank you so much for having me on again. I hope I've said something of, of interest and you I'll see I'll see you Sunday, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I'll see you Sunday and bring anyone you want. I'll only bring nice people. Okay. All uh, right. Here's a hug for you. Thank you to all our listeners for 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 listening to us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.